Well, hello there, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships while we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. If this is your first episode, I want to say welcome. Super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, I want to say how much I appreciate you, how much I love you for coming back week after week. You are a rock star. And today, you and I get to hang out with Dr. Ron Friedman. Ron is an award-winning social psychologist who specializes in human motivation. Ron has served on the faculty of the University of Rochester, Nazareth College, and Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and is consulted for some of the world's most successful organizations. Popular accounts of his research have appeared on NPR and in major newspapers, including the New York Times, Financial Times, The Globe and Mail, Washington Post, The Guardian, as well as magazines such as Men's Health, Entrepreneur, and Success. He is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Forbes, and CNN. His first book, The Best Place to Work, was named in Inc. Magazine's Best Business Book of the Year, and his new book, Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success, was selected by Amazon's editors as one of this year's best nonfiction books. And in this episode, as always, I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, why having ideas that are too original can actually harm you. Number two, how you can take the risk out of risk taking whenever you launch a new product or business in the world and what that has to do with pay less shoes. And number three, why the key to getting better feedback is actually to avoid asking for feedback altogether and what you should be asking for instead. I will just say also, I am a huge fan of Decoding Greatness. I took it and started implementing some stuff immediately as you will hear in this interview and I will share in the interview, throughout the interview, what I was actually implementing. Before we dive in, I wanna give a pre show listener shout out, which this week goes to Glenn Long, who left review saying, awesome guest and a naturally engaging host. I only found this podcast recently, but I already love it. Brandon is a natural host, bringing out the best in his guests by asking smart questions at just the right point. I'm too old to be a millennial, but I don't mind being the middle-aged guy crashing the cool kids party. Keep the guests coming, Brandon. So thank you so much, Glenn Long, for that incredible review. And if you're a returning listener and you haven't left a review yet, I have a new favor to ask you. If you've listened to me say this or asked this before, I am no longer asking for reviews. It's too complicated. It takes too much time. All I'm asking for is if you are listening to my voice right now and you're listening on either Spotify or Apple, you can take literally 10 seconds, scroll down or scroll up wherever you're at, type whatever, tap whatever rating you feel I'm deserving of, and that's it. If you choose to leave a review, that's great. I would love that. I would love to give you a pre-show shout out, but if you're not into that, you can also just take 10 seconds, even less, to just tap whatever review you think that I'm worthy of, Uh, and if you want to leave a review, you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash review to find out how to do that, but that is extra credit, my friend. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with Dr. Ron Friedman. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast. Dr. Ron Friedman, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, of course. So want to give everyone a little bit of background information. We were first introduced through Jonathan Levy when I was working at Superhuman Academy. We had a lot of fun doing some promotions. And then I got reintroduced when Decoding Greatness hit my desk and I read it and I'm like, this is a work of genius. So I'm super excited that I was able to reconnect with you and share the, the what you've created with everyone. So um, I always like to start and by, by looking at a story. And so one of the things that I found is that in, in your first book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace, you dedicated it to your grandmother, grandfather, who taught you that in the end, the only thing being worth remembered for is kindness. And then decoding greatness, uh, you dedicated to your grandmother, who taught you the importance of taking risks. Uh, so I, I love the big part of decoding greatness. You talk about taking risks, and I thought it'd be fun to start with if you have a story from either your grandmother or grandfather on uh, what inspired you to create decoding greatness. Oh well, that's uh, first of all, thank you for reading it with such depth because this I've done a ton of podcasts. No one's ever asked me about this. So in terms of my <laughs> grandmother and and my grandfather, they met during the Holocaust. And uh, my grandfather was a dentist. They moved to Israel after the, the Holocaust. They had no, no uh, source of income except the fact that he was a dentist. So my mother, my grandmother went door to door and asked people if they needed a dentist. And when I was born in Israel, I came to the United States when I was seven. Uh, my grandfather was like a local celebrity. Everyone would say hello to him on the street because he was the dentist to go to in the town uh, where we, where I was born. And so that taught me, you know, a lot of valuable lessons. Like they could have, they could have just like, you know, they just gone through the Holocaust, right? Like it would have been very easy to just like take some welfare or whatever, whatever the easier road would have been, but she uh, had bigger goals and bigger intentions for the family and she succeeded. So I I appreciated that. The other thing that I thanked her for in the dedication, as you may have noticed, was for introducing me to the importance of adding lemon and dill to as many dishes (laughs) as possible. And that is a form of identifying a uh, a model that works for many dishes. And that's one of the things I look at in Decoding Greatness is what are great chefs doing that we can learn from? What are the patterns that we can decode? And that was one of the patterns that she decoded and passed on to the rest Mm. of the family. Beautiful transition, masterfully done there. So let's let's <laughs> let's go right into decoding greatness. So I want to start by kind of introducing people to the topic, and then we'll do a high level overview, and we'll try to see how much we can cover. But I'd love for you to start by telling the story that you talk about in the the introduction. Um, I'll kind of cue things up for you. So it's 1983. Apple is seven years old. They have a value of more than a billion dollars. And Bill Gates announces that they want to develop a user friendly operating system. What happens next? So what happens next is that Steve Jobs calls Gates into his office and tears him a new one. Uh, So Gates at the time had been working as a vendor for Apple and uh, Jobs was under the impression that he was being ripped off, that Gates had figured out that they were about to release the Macintosh and he was trying to replicate it in the form of Windows and release it uh, under his own name. When in fact, both Jobs and Gates had uh, seen a version of this that was developed by Xerox and were simply taking a an underutilized technology and in reintroducing it into the world, making it more accessible in some fashion. And that for th- that technology was the graphic user interface. So what that means is when we use a computer, we're able to use a mouse to point and click. Before that technology, you would have to enter syntax into a computer, and it was very laborious, and it was preventing computers from hitting the mass market and becoming a popular item. Both Jobs and Gates saw that Xerox was doing this. Xerox had no intention to bring this to the mass market. 
And so they reverse engineered the technology. And what that means is they identified what the technology was intended to do to figure out how it may have been built and then evolve that technology in some way. And so in the for, in jobs, he, he uh, introduced it in the form of the Macintosh. In Gates, he introduced it in the form of, the, of Windows. And in fact, ne- neither one of them had ripped off one or the other, nor had they really ripped off Xerox. It's not like they took a Xerox computer and identified its code. They simply saw an underutilized technology, worked backwards to figure out and asked themselves, hey, if I was to recreate this, how would I do it? And then had their teams restructure it and develop it into a new technology. And that mode of thinking, which is looking at what's out there in the world, how can I recreate it and evolve it in some way and make it useful to my audience is the critical piece here. This is the thing that I think most people don't think enough about, which is you don't necessarily have to invent an idea out of scratch. What you do need to do is find a winning idea that's being underutilized and think about what's a new way that I can utilize this. And that really is, is, uh, is the crux of the books, which is this, this strategy of reverse engineering. Yes. Okay. There's so there's a million places we can go right now. So, so I'll just kind of give a high level overview of what I'd like to cover. So first of all, highly recommend everyone go get the book. I'll say that even before we even get to the end, I want to condense as much wisdom as we can in today's interview. So here's my 30,000 foot view. We just talked about how reverse engineering is the key to many people's success. And then, so I would love to go into how do you reverse engineer? And then we'll talk about how to take what you've learned and then add your own twists and perspectives to make it your own. So we'll see how much ground you can we can cover. But let's start with the, the first part of how do you reverse engineer? So in part one of the book, you talk about the art of unlocking hidden patterns. And so one of the first things that you recommend as a very actionable step for people is to create a private museum. So tell us a little bit about that and what that is. Yeah. So w- when you think about how is it that computers uh, computer algorithms in particular, how is it that they're so good at predicting what people are going to like? So for example, if you use Spotify, Spotify is really good at predicting which artists you're going to like. If you use Tinder, uh, Tinder is really good at figuring out who you're going to find attractive. And so if we take the example of Tinder, which is what I do in Decoding Greatness, if you look at how their algorithm gets really good at predicting who you're going to find attractive, the answer is it has you rate a few potential mates and then it looks at the people you have swiped right on, meaning people that you've liked. And then what it does is it looks for underlying commonalities, and it may be things that you may were not aware of at all when you made your selection. So for example, you might just be uh, looking at people and, and determining whether or not you find them attractive, but then what Tinder does, it, it looks at some of those commonalities, like, for example, maybe those that the, the types of people that you like are really outgoing, or they like spicy foods, uh, or they're redheads, whatever the case may be. It could be physical, it could be non-physical. And then it starts to make predictions about who else you're going to find attractive based on who you've liked in the past. And how it does that is by comparing the people you've selected versus the people you didn't select. We need to do that same thing because unless we have that private collection of uh, works that we have found compelling, we're not going to be able to find a pattern about the things that move us. And so what I argue in the book is that the first step to becoming really good at what it is that you find compelling is to create that private collection, a private museum that you can tour on your own free time to find inspiration anytime you need to create something new. And when we think about collections, we tend to think of physical objects. We think of artwork, we think of wine, we think of shoes, but that definition is too narrow. I can tell you, I know a lot of copywriters, they like to collect headlines. That's Uh, me. (laughs) Right, consultants, 
They'll collect presentation decks. You might even collect proposals to determine what it is that makes them uh, uh, successful. And once you have that collection, that's when you can start um, diagnosing what are the elements that make this work unique. But without that collection, you really have no starting point. And it, it's as simple as either bookmarking, you know, landing pages that you like, saving ads that uh, resonated with you for some reason, or, uh, you know, we talk if Facebook ads, you can, you can, it can be as simple as, as starting a Pinterest account by, and just pinning the images that really move you. And again, when you have that private museum to go and visit, now you've got a place to, um, not just unlock those hidden patterns by connect, by, by comparing the, uh, ordinary against the extraordinary the things in your collection versus the thing that, that things that aren't in your collection, but it also just inspires you to think big. And the next time you need to create a new work. Yeah, I love that. And my wife will tell you that I'm out in public. And if I see a billboard that I think is engaging or something on, you know, when we were traveling in London, like we were sitting on the two, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm always categorizing all that kind of stuff. And, you know, as a podcaster, I love to listen to other people's podcasts as well. And I kind of have a library as well. So absolutely love that. And, you know, clearly you have done this very well in, in the way that you organize it because you tell like three stories for every like page of the book. And you also allude <laughs> to the fact that like David Bowie collected records, Julia Child collected cookbooks, Quentin Tarantino consumed movies, Ernest Hemingway had 9,000 books in his library. So this is definitely the secret sauce is starting with creating uh, this, this collection that we can then borrow from. So once we have this collection, the next thing we need to do is... Uh, analyze it and start to kind of determine the what makes these things unique. So talk to, to us. Actually, you know what? Let's go here. Let's start with a story. Would you mind telling us a little bit about um, the story of first starting your writing your first academic paper? So it's your year of graduate school at University of Rochester. You have to write something for your very first time. You're sitting at a blank screen <laughs> and you're like, how do I do this? Talk to us a little bit about that and what that has to do with taking information and then consolidating it. Yeah. What it does is it speaks to one of the tools you can use to uh, more carefully analyze the works you've collected because that's the next step, right? So you've collected all these works. What do you do with them? What you, now you need to start analyzing them to figure out what makes them unique. And one of the, my favorite tools is one that I discovered while attempting to write my first academic journal article. And it was a really painful experience. I really, as you as you correctly alluded to, I, I struggled with this. I had a really hard time sleeping uh, because I, I knew that this needed to get done. This, you were not going to earn your PhD unless you got good at writing papers. And there was no real paper writing class. It just didn't work that way. It was like, all right, now it's your job to write a paper. And it was assumed that you knew how to do this. And if you didn't know how to do this, then maybe you didn't belong. That was the real danger when you're in, uh, in a PhD program. And so here I am trying to write this paper, uh, facing the blank screen and just struggling for weeks. And one day it occurred to me to just read my favorite writers, um, my favorite uh, social psychologist, uh, psychology writer, uh, read a few of his journal articles, one after the other. And after only, only after I did uh, that for a little while, did it occur to me that there was a hidden pattern in all of his journal articles. And that pattern was he would start with some kind of startling statistic. Then he would talk about, he would raise some kind of really important question. Then he'd do a literature review and then he'd go back to the question and he'd say, now I have the research to answer that question. And that pattern became obvious only after I had that collection of his papers. And how, what, I, what I did to uncover it was I started reverse outlining. And we've all heard of outlining. Outlining is the tool we've all learned about since middle school. And it's the process of bullet pointing what you're going to put in your finished piece. So you've got one bullet point for every paragraph. Reverse outlining is 
uh, traditional outlinings, sneakier, uh, more inquisitive cousin. And, and how it works is taking somebody else's finished work and then going backward and trying to create the bullet points that that person probably used to write their paper. And once you do that, once you start reverse outlining somebody else's finished work, all of a sudden, you, it becomes much easier to detect their pattern because now you're taking a step back and you're seeing the full picture instead of just focusing on reading one line at a time. And you can use this not just for journal articles. You can use this for blog posts. You can use this for ads. You can use this for movies. You can use this for podcasts. You can use this for uh, ads on Facebook. Again, anything that you, any written uh, uh, it doesn't even have to be written, honestly. I mean, any 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 finished product that you want to analyze, work to reverse outline it and reduce it to bullet points, and that will allow you to see the big picture. Yeah, and one of my favorite examples that you gave inside of the book, and I love that you started you started the chapter with this sentence: "In the early 1950s, a Christmas gift revolutionized professional football." So you can't help but not reading the rest of that. But it was a really <laughs> cool story because they had it was. Vincent Lombardi's assistant, they would take a Polaroid camera and take a picture of a play and then throw it down in a weighted sock before obviously all the real-time stuff that everybody has. But it just speaks to the importance of having a zoomed out perspective on whatever you're working on gives you that ability to then look at the separate parts and really construct something great from there. So once and, we and honestly, have- you know, to this point, Brandon, anytime you're stuck when you're creating something, yeah. force yourself to zoom out and you can get that by doing something different. You can get that by taking a walk. But if, if you ever you're feeling stuck, that almost always is the answer. It's, mm-hmm. it's because you, you're too close to it. You've got to step back. And what this process does is it forces you to step back without you even trying. There's no effort involved. When you tell yourself, I'm going to reverse outline this, uh, immediately you will have direction. Yeah. Okay. So we now have a private collection of whatever body of work that we're looking at getting better at we have now kind of reverse outlined and started to identify the differences between these different things and kind of gotten a sense of what makes greatness happen or why these things are happening. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we take that and create something that we can then create and reuse for ourselves so that we can build off of that? Yeah. So what, what you can do once you've got um, a reverse outline is actually a, another tool you can use. I talk about in Decoding Greatness, which is to unlock key metrics. And what that means is simply using uh, a technique to determine what's different about this uh, product that's that's unique that you wouldn't necessarily uncover just by looking at it. And it's by looking at how often something occurs in a finished body of work. So for example, uh, one of the examples I give it in the book is I take the most popular TED talk of all time. It's the one delivered by Ken Robinson. If you've seen it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a talk he gives about the importance of teaching creativity in schools and how schools beat the creativity out of us. And it's because when you go to a school, often what happens is you're rewarded for having the right answer and you're taught that having the incorrect answer is a sin, right? And so you get penalized for it. And that um, is counter to what it takes to be creative because in order to be creative, you have to make lots and lots of wrong ideas in order to find the right one. And so he argues in his TED talk that the only way for, for us to become more creative is for schools to really reward creativity, not just reward the right answer. In any event, what is it that makes his talk compelling? Well, it's really hard to know just by looking at it. But if you look at how often he says certain things, if you analyze his TED talk, as I show you how to do in Decoding Greatness, what you uncover is he's not actually sharing very many facts. Instead, he's telling you a lot of really interesting and relatable anecdotes. And so what that tells you is that the most popular TED talk of all time 
isn't very fact-based at all. In fact, there's just one fact that he shares in the entire talk. Rather, it's driven by storytelling. And you only get that when you start analyzing it for how often he tells stories versus how often every other TED Talks tells stories. And so he's unique in that stamp from that standpoint. A lot of storytelling, a lot of jokes, not a lot of facts. Now, if I was to sit down and write a TED Talk, I'd probably have, have it be really fact-driven because that's <laughs> my style. But Doing that analysis teaches me that, wait a second, no, that's not the way to do it. What you really want to do is have a storytelling style that you adopt and, and be funny if you can. That's another tool that is worth knowing about and, and one that I discuss in the book. Um, and then once you've got those two tools together, you've got the reverse outlining, you've got those outliers. What is it that, that makes this unique? Now you can turn it into a template. You can templatize. You can templatize a TED Talk. So in the case of Robinson, once you've got that reverse outline where you understand what is he doing in the first section, what's he doing in the second section, what's he doing in the third section, you can start creating a Mad Lib for yourself where it's almost like a fill in the blank. Hey, what's my theory that's no one, most people disagree with. And what's my supporting evidence? What's my uh, interesting anecdote? What's going to happen if this doesn't get addressed? And what's 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 a an emotional close that I can bring this to a crescendo with? Now you've got a TED Talk template that you've developed simply by having the tools to reverse outline a winning TED Talk. Yeah, so cool. Okay, so now we have this template for whatever that it is that we're working on. And one of the things you talk about also in the book is that like, once you have this template, your, your job now is to add your unique twists and really make this thing your own now, right? So I wanna go into some of the ways that we can add unique twists. But before we get into that, I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about a Harvard study on optimal newness, because I think this is really important on this topic. Yeah, I agree. And, and it is a study that looked at what are the grants that get awarded funding from places like the NIH. And what they did was they had had all of these grant proposals analyzed for their level of creativity. And what they found is the most creative ideas, they got rejected all the time. The ideas that had no creativity, they got rejected too. Why? Because they weren't adding anything new. So what is it that makes winning proposals appeal to judges? And the answer is it has to have a small degree of novelty. And that is uh, identified by the researchers as optimal newness. And so when you have something that's just a little bit new, that tends to appeal to people. And it's because as a species, we tend to be distrustful of the completely new. Anything that's completely new is scary and that's hardwired into how we think. And so rather than attempting to be as creative as possible, which I think for a lot of people, a lot of creative professionals, they assume that that is what they should be aiming for. They should try to stand out and be completely new. But in fact, what the research shows is if you want to gain mass appeal, it's going to be a lot easier for you to do that by trying to take a winning formula and adding a, a slight twist. And if you look at people like who, who are incredibly successful for being creative, people like David Bowie, David Bowie didn't show up you know, doing disco in the 1960s, he built on what was popular at the time, which was acoustic guitar. And then he, uh, he, he then slowly uh, modified that with every album becoming a little bit more different. But again, it wasn't by jumping uh, ahead light years that is likely to get rejected. You're far better off taking a winning formula and just adding a slight twist to it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to remember where this came from, but I know somebody else that has been on the show, Michael Roderick, he was sharing about 
how when Hey Ya came out, the song Hey Ya, it was like so new that people didn't even know how to interpret it. So what radio stations started to do is play Hey Ya with like other really familiar music like Celine Dion. And then, and then people started to adapt and understand because they were able to kind of correlate things that were something new. But it, it just speaks to the fact that the brain can't handle too much newness. And my two favorite examples that you gave in Decoding Greatness, I didn't know this, but uh, you said there was something called Takeout Taxi that w- came out in 1987 that was basically Uber Eat and DoorDash, but like way too early. Like we weren't ready for that. Also, yeah, I think you'd, also- have to, you'd have to fax in your order. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah. That's how it works. And- yeah. And the Microsoft spot watch is another one I didn't know came way before the Apple watch, but uh, you know, so there's, there is definitely a balance of creating something that people are, can wrap their brains around and actually move forward. So I'd love to go into some of these ways that we can actually concretely create twists. Um, and one of the idea uh, we'll try to maybe just get, cover a few of them, but one of them I, I highlighted is finding ideas in outside genres and industries and importing them in your own. And there's a story I love that you tell in the book that has to do with Barack Obama visiting churches. Would you mind sharing that story? Yeah. So not a lot of people know this, but Barack Obama was not always a successful politician. In fact, his first race for Congress did not end up very successful. He uh, lost by a, a resounding margin of more than two to one. And the problem, if you can believe it, was that he was not a very good speaker. And his experience at the time had been one of being a law school professor. And so as a law school professor, you tend to um, lecture at people. And voters don't like to be lectured to, and they let him know at the ballot box. And so after he loses his first race, he thinks about losing politics. He doesn't know what he's going to do next until somebody on his campaign staff recommends that he go visit some of the churches to see how pastors are engaging their flock. And uh, a year later, he comes back. And he is now telling stories. He's modulating his tone. He's using repetition. He's quoting the Bible. And the rest, of course, is history. And what I love about that story is that Barack Obama didn't do the things that we often assume are the things that lead to success. He didn't go off into the wilderness and find his talent. He didn't practice for 10,000 hours. Instead, he looked at what was working at a different field and then incorporated it into his own. And that is an approach that we can all use in order to be successful. You don't have to invent something completely original. What you need to have an eye for is winning formulas, figure out why it is that they're working, and then find a way of evolving them in a way that incorporates them into your field in a way that hasn't been done before. And that means, you know, in our case, if you're a marketer, look at what, how rappers are marketing instead of how uh, people in your own field are doing it. I have a friend who uh, argues that if you want to see where technology is going, you should study the porn industry because the porn industry is always <laughs> ahead of everyone else in terms of streaming. Uh, and, 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 and now, uh, you know, we've gotten to the point where uh, most of it is either homemade and you've got to go through OnlyFans or it is, um, uh, it's free and they're using um, um, advertising to attract viewers. And it's really interesting because what that tells you is that probably whatever field you're in, um, it, it is likely to... Um, evolve in a direction where there's a free model, but there's an, there's advertising mm. on top of it. And so th- I, I don't know that, that, that the porn industry explains everything and nor do I think that you should <laughs> name the, the title of the, the, this podcast that, but, um, <laughs> although that would probably gain a lot of clicks. Um, yeah, Ron, but, but, Ron, you're going to come back and we can be like, what the hell Brandon? <laughs> that's right. Ron kidding. Friedman, Ron Friedman explains <laughs> the porn industry. Um, but, but the point is, is like, that's the goal is to find an industry that's a little bit different than yours and ask yourself as you're, as you're looking at um, 
the different fields, ask yourself, what can I learn from this? How can I apply this to my field to become a little bit better? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite marketers of all time and somebody that I've been studying a lot lately is Jay Abraham. Um, and that's one of the things he talks about a lot is that he actually worked in, I think it was like 485 different industries from all over different places. And what some businesses might be using as common practice in one industry is completely unknown somewhere else. And so if you have that visibility and exactly like what Obama did is you went and you visited another context and you can take that and apply winning formulas somewhere else. I absolutely love that. So there's one way to add a unique twist is for you to just go outside, explore different things uh, and maybe see what industries like the porn industry are doing. And maybe you can apply that somehow. Let's go into one more. And I love this one because I think it's really unique and it has to do with shifting your composition of your team and network. So would you mind telling us a little bit about how Marvel selects the people that are going to direct their movies? So Marvel uses an approach that uh, researchers have looked at and have uh, described as inexperienced experience, meaning they look for to bring a, a new team member to every movie that ha- it, it, whose experience comes from a different industry. And so, for example, I talk about this in the book. If you've watched some of the early Thor movies, they're very serious, they're very somber. And then if you go to Thor Ragnarok, all of a sudden it's hilarious and, and it's still the same characters and it, for whatever reason, still feels consistent with the, the, it's not like the characters feel like they're out of place. These do feel like the same movies, but they're just funny now. And it's because they've added a, uh, a, a director from the comedy industry. And so this is part of why Marvel, which is in fact quite formulaic, if you watch all their movies, um, it has managed to stay successful for so long. And it's by every movie being a little bit different than the one became before it. And and they're doing it intentionally. And it's by hiring people whose experience comes from different industries. And that's an approach we can use as well in order to make our work more creative. It's by adding teammates whose experience comes from a different field. And so if you're looking for a way of evolving a winning formula, sometimes you don't even have to add the answer yourself. It's just by adding a a teammate from a different industry that will modify the winning formula just enough to make it unique. And again, have that optimal newness. Mm -hmm. And I'll add on top of that, the other example that you give that I think is super applicable for anyone, even if you're not even dealing with team members is channeling personas. So one of the things that Ron talks about is like, how would Stephen Colbert or the Dalai Lama or Oprah Winfrey do this? If you kind of like think about it from their perspective, you might be able to shift the way that the end production comes out because you kind of put yourself somewhere else. So so many, so just so everybody knows, we just covered two of them right there. So we, we, if you want to go read the book, check it out. There's a bunch more excluding in, influences. Um, creativity is what happens when ideas have sex. Uh, so those are just some teasers for you to make sure you go check out the book. But now I want to see how much more we can cover. So now we know how to create a template. We know how to add our unique twists on it. The next part of the book is where you go into the vision ability gap, which I would summarize as like essentially closing the gap between now what you see possible and your reality. And um, the challenge is really understanding how to know how to bridge this gap. So one of the things you talk about is the scoreboard principle. Um, would you mind sharing what that is and how we can leverage that to close that gap between now we know what it, now what we know is possible and making it a reality? Yeah. So I think you summarized it really well, which is the first half of the book is all about how do you reverse engineer what other people are doing successfully so that you can learn from their techniques, spot patterns, and elevate your creativity. The second half of the book is all about how do you get good 
at executing a winning formula. Just because you have somebody else's winning recipe doesn't mean you're going to get good at it, especially right out of the gate, because often there is a gap between what it is you're trying to achieve and what your current abilities allow you to do. And so the second half of the book is all about research-based techniques for getting really good at a particular task and doing so quickly. Uh, and so the first principle that I share in the book, in, in, the, in the chapter on the scoreboard principle, is that we know from the research that if you want to get better at anything, the, the best thing to, to do is to start tracking your outcomes and tracking your behaviors. And, and so we know, you know, if you want to consume more water, simply keep track of your daily water intake. If you want to lose weight, keep track of your calorie intake. If you want to increase your focus at work, start monitoring how many interrupted, uninterrupted minutes you have during the workday. It's an incredibly powerful tool, and it's one that most people don't use enough of. And it's because the more we uh, monitor a particular uh, behavior, the more likely we are to follow through. And it's because our minds can't help but pay attention to numbers. We're literally evolved to uh, be very sensitive to numerical information. And there's a whole section on that in the book. I, I won't go into it right now. But the point is, is if you want to get good at anything, start monitoring your behavior. So anything you monitor, you will improve on. And it because it's because you become way more uh, um, mindful of your behavior. You start making choices that optimize for the number. And this, by the way, is why um, so many apps have metrics that have almost nothing to do with the, what the app is actually trying to do. Almost every app has scoring, even if it's not a game. And it's because apps, app designers have started to harness this. They've started to leverage this. They know that any, any numbers that they introduce make a behavior more addicting. And so you can do this for yourself. And unless you do this, you know, this is kind of the, the other side of the coin, unless you start monitoring important metrics, you're going to get, um, tied up in somebody else's metrics for you. This is why we can't help but worry about how many retweets we got and how many likes our Facebook post got and how many followers we have on LinkedIn. But once you start um, filling that gap with metrics that actually matter. So for example, again, I mentioned uninterrupted minutes during the workday, you might have um, you know, how many words that I write if you're a writer, how many ads that I create today if you're a copywriter, um, whatever the whatever the metric is for you, but having that metric focuses your behavior on the outcomes you're aiming to achieve. And so whatever it is you're trying to get good at, start measuring it because that is the quickest path to improvement. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to combine two different approaches together This because this is just where my brain went. First of all, Ron, I would love to share you what I call my spreadsheet of life. I have this whole spreadsheet I've developed for several years now, and I have all different metrics that I track. I'm sure you and I could probably nerd out on that for a little bit. But uh, one of the things- Hold on, hold on. That... I'm not going to let you get away with this. I want to know, like, <laughs> what, what are the top three metrics that you have found to be helpful to you? Well, the most important thing I think is being very clear about what I want to get done the next day. I don't, I don't believe in winging it when I wake up and open my laptop in the morning. Yes. So the night ahead of time, I want to prioritize the three most important things I want to get done. Mm -hmm. And that's a very clear thing that I always do. It's like, I have a, a structured plan that I want to do. I have tasks that are derivative of that plan. And then I want to make sure that I'm executing on it. So the number one thing I track is, am I actually executing on mm. the components that I said I was going to execute on. And this talks mm. about where I wanted to go. And so I'll, I'll kind of maybe make a hybrid here is, 
is tracking the process, not necessarily the outcome, right? Like how are you making sure yes. that the, the metrics that you're tracking are not necessarily like uh, uh, from the big picture goal, but rather what are the daily activities that if completed will lead to the outcome of the goal? Because whether or not you actually achieve it, you're actually making progress. So to answer your question and to also transition us, I, that's what I track is like, have I completed the three main things that I want to do? Um, and then, yeah. So Anything you want to add on that or, or can I? Yes, go with I, you? I agree with you in that it's important to have a blend of short-term and long-term goals. Uh, and it's because when you have that combination, it allows you to feel like you're making progress when the long-term goal can be so distant that it feels exactly. impossible after a while. So example, if, you, if you're measuring for how many books that I write today, you're going to have a lot of no's <laughs> until finally on year three, you have one day that you have a yes. But if it's tracking the number of words you've written, um, that, that's where I think it's valuable. Um, and you know, I think we've heard a lot about the, the, uh, the, import, the difference between goals and systems and how important it is to have a system, but you can have goals be part of your system. So they're not necessarily yeah. mutually exclusive. And so here having a, a metric that help, and it's interesting, it's not necessarily about a yes or no, did I meet my goal? It's also just tracking it. So for mm-hmm. example, how many minutes of exercise did you get? How much uh, how much water did you consume? How many how many pages did you read? Those types of metrics. Once you just start monitoring them, if you have zeros, you know, day after day for how many pages that I read, that's going to make you feel guilty, and that guilt is useful because you're now going to be able to harness it in a productive way. Um, but again, unless you have, this is the big danger: is that unless you're keeping track of some sort of metrics, it becomes really easy to uh, fall for someone else's metrics. And I'll give you just an example to make this concrete. I think for a lot of us uh, who are thinking about being successful in life, the definition of success can change from context to context. So for example, you might be listening to a podcast about wealth. Maybe this is one of them. And you walk away and you think to yourself, man, wealth is invisible and true wealth is having money that's invested. And you can't really see that when you meet someone. Then a friend of yours texts you and says, hey, we're all going to Aruba next month. Do you want to join us? And now you're optimizing not for wealth, you're optimizing for short-term fun. And so it jumps from context to context. And so unless you have that metric of what it is that you determine, this is the thing I'm going to mm-hmm. optimize for, and I'm going to keep myself accountable, then it becomes really easy to jump from, from place to place. Because invariably, after listening to that wealth podcast, you come back to it after your trip from Aruba, and now you feel like you failed yourself. But if you say, and then, but if all you do is, is listening to the, to the wealth podcast, you say no to your friend. Now you also feel like you've failed yourself. And so I think it's one of the things I argue for in, in, in identifying metrics is that the real value is um, front loaded. Once you determine what it is you want to optimize for, because once you have that clarity, it becomes a lot easier to become happy because now you know what direction you're committed to. Yeah, absolutely. And constantly another friend that I had on the show, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, he just wrote the book, The Gain and the Gap uh, with Dan Sullivan. And it's just like, when you're measuring those metrics, are you measuring yourself about the progress that you've achieved? Or are you measuring yourself against the ideal outcome, which is going to continue to move forward? Um, and so I want to—I also want to take this time right now to thank you for something, Ron, because you shared something in the Decoding Greatness that I immediately implemented. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And I added it to my spreadsheet of life. But you talk about this five-year journal, um, and this goes into your, your component of practicing in three dimensions. Uh, but basically, what I did and how I implemented this and what Ron, I mean, you, maybe you can elaborate on this, but basically, it's like you want to see how you've made 
decisions and progressed over time. And unless you're tracking that and have a way of seeing against that, um, you know, it, it makes it really hard to move forward. So what I did is in my spreadsheet, I have, I can go back to 2019, 2020, 2021, and 2022, and I can see what I was doing on that day. And it's really cool to see my, my progress, but also to kind of quote unquote, mine the past. So I wanted to thank you for that. Cause I thought that was a really cool thing. And I would encourage anybody to add that if you are, have a journaling practice to simply see the progress over time. So love that. Yeah, um, I agree. And, and this is one of the things that um, also reminds you of past successes. We are so quick to dismiss, I think, especially high achievers, very quick to dismiss what we've achieved and always are focusing on what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And, and because you're constantly, this is probably, this is probably, this is also the problem with to-do lists, which is it's not about what I did. It's about what I didn't do. And so you're constantly feel like you're not doing enough. And that's a real challenge because m- ensuring that you are actually feeling like you're making progress, you're, you're being successful, you're optimistic about the future is one of the keys to sustaining that success over the long term. And so the five-year journal, by looking back at what you did on this day last year and the year before and the year before that, it's a tool, by the way, that you can purchase on Amazon, on any one of the, any bookstore that has one of these that allows you to to write down what it is you did on this day and what it is you struggled with and what it is you learned, um, that practice of going back a year or two years um, ensures that you're reminded of past successes and keeps Mm -hmm. you feeling like you're making um, good decisions along the way. And if you're not making good decisions, you're reminded of what those mistakes were so you can learn from them. Yeah. And ironically, as I did this and I was prepping for this, because I just did my prep for February because we're recording this February 1st. But um, ironically, three years ago, you and I were working on the webinar for Jonathan. Like, what are the odds that that (laughs) we ended up recording this almost three years to the date when we first got introduced? So anyways, super cool. Um, I know we're going to start to wrap up here. So I want to kind of get in a few more of these ways that people can start to achieve this mastery level. And one of the ones I highlighted, because this is so core to the way that I've operated. I had a mentor tell me once when I was 16 years old, my very first mentor, she's like, if you ask for money, you'll get advice. If you ask for advice, you'll get money. I don't have time to go into that whole story, but I found that to be very true that asking for advice unlocks whole new levels of things. And one of the things you talk about in the book, um, you talk, you have a whole section dedicated to how to talk to experts. But one of the things you talk about to get better feedback is to avoid actually asking for feedback and asking for advice instead. So I'd love for you to tell tell the difference and why that makes such a big difference to ask for advice instead of feedback. Yeah, I, I appreciate you picking that out. So this is a study that came out of Harvard Business School that looked at why it is that people are better at delivering feedback when they're asked to give advice. And it's because when you ask people for feedback, they tend to compare what it is you just did relative to your past performance. And so they're looking at improvements versus uh, uh, you know, uh, drops in your performance. Whereas if you ask people for advice, they're comparing your current per- per- performance to what it could be in the future. And so rather than looking backward at what you did in the past and whether you've gotten better or worse, now they're looking at what you could do potentially to become even better. And that leads them to provide over 50% more suggestions. And so it's just a little bit of a uh, tweak in how you frame the question that unlocks all of these great ideas in your audience. And so you ask people for advice on what it is that you've just delivered. So for example, you can write an ad and ask a friend of yours, hey, uh, what advice would you have for making this ad better? relative to asking, hey, what do you what do you think of this ad? What, what's your feedback on this? Um, you're going to get much better responses by asking for their advice. 
Yeah. And I think it was something, I think I highlighted, it was like 50% more responses come Correct. from, yeah, asking for advice result in 50% more ideas, just because I feel like people are really cognizant of like, if they're offending you, if they're like, if they're, you know, not comfortable with giving direct feedback, whereas if it's coming from, you know, a, a future base, let me help you improve, it totally changes things. So love that. I'm going to skip to, so that, that's the whole, there's a whole topic about how to ask <laughs> experts for advice. I want to go backwards a little bit. And I want to talk about your chapter about how to take the risk out of risk taking. And yeah. I'll be completely honest, Ron, I was, I was reading and you told the story about Palesi and I had to Google it. So I YouTube, I YouTube this whole, <laughs> this whole ad. Um, so I know people are like, what, what was that word you just said? So, so this, just for some context, this talks about how to use pseudonyms to test out ideas um, so that you don't have to actually fall on your face if things don't work out. So tell us a little bit about what Palesi did to leverage pseudonyms to test out a new idea. Yeah, this is a great story. I'd forgotten about this story. So I'm glad you you brought it up. You know, I, I think I've done 150 podcasts. No one has asked me about that story. And it's a great story. And so uh, this was, um, I guess I, I, I'm trying to think of a way of telling the story without getting to the punchline until the end, but I don't think I can. So I'm just going <laughs> to spoil, spoil the story right now, which is there is no Palesi. Palesi was a fake name created by Payless Shoes marketing agency to determine whether or not people would like Payless Shoes once the Payless name was no longer associated with it. And so they set up this fake boutique that's got glass uh, uh, glass um, lit displays. Uh, it's got fancy plush sofas everywhere and all these shoes. And the price tag on some of these shoes is preposterous. It's like $400, $800, $1,000. And the shoes do really well sold at this boutique and only later do they uh, confess, hey, these are actually Payless shoes. And they actually go for like, $29. And they shoot this <laughs> viral ad. It goes all over the place. And it demonstrates how sometimes you're having your name associated with uh, a, a product can actually backfire. And so there's real value in determining how successful a, an ad or a product is without having your name attached to it, because that'll determine for you whether or not it really has potential. And then in many cases, adding your name will only make it more successful. But uh, mm -hmm. to your point, the whole section is about how to take the risk out of risk-taking, because if you're going to get good at something, you need to be able to take lots and lots of risks because by getting feedback on your performance, that's how you improve. But sometimes some of us have you know a track record of success. We don't want to take that risk so, and have a very public failure. And so the answer in many cases is to create a pseudonym and to test out your idea that way. Yeah. And I didn't, another thing, I guess I didn't realize how much decoding greatness was kind of, I, I guess I just love implementing things right away, but I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. And I also found out that JK Rowling wrote under the pseudonym, Robert Galbraith. Um, yeah. and, and she started this whole new genre. So I was like, I didn't know that. And so I started reading it. Turns out I don't like Robert Galbraith as much as JK Rowling, <laughs> but I guess that's, that's why she used the pseudonym. And then the other example I thought was hilarious under this topic was, um, Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger used to perform under the cockroaches, uh, when they wanted to perform shows and not have as much pressure and test out some other ideas. So That's all right. that is inside of the, the this chapter. We'll do one I, I more, will, Ron. Oh, go ahead. I will say, if you did not like Robert Galbraith, I, I will recommend The Ichabog by J.K. Rowling. I read it to my ah, son, okay. nine years old. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a kid's book as is Harry Potter, but uh, I definitely feel like she did a good job of recapturing some of the magic in that book. Okay. I have it down as a note. I will, I will check that out. Um, <laughs> Last one I want to, I guess we'll kind of end on this one. This also comes from how to take the risk out of risk taking, because I think this is so relevant for you listening right now. 
if you have an existing business and you want to launch something new, like a new arm, you know, and you want to, don't want to fall on your face, or if you're a younger entrepreneur or just kind of getting started, how do you create something uh, much, much quicker? And so one of the topics you talk about is sell first, build later. Um, and the, the story that you tell in this particular section is about Zappos that I really like. So would you mind sharing how Zappos was able to sell first and build later so they could take the risk out of risk-taking? Yeah. So this is, uh, again, one of my favorite stories in the book, and it's this, the story of uh, how a guy named Nick Swinworm in the late 1990s decided to open up a shoe store, except he didn't open up a shoe store. What he did was he took photos of the shoes at his local shoe store, posts them online, and comes to a deal with the manager of the local shoe store that goes as follows. Anytime a shoe sells online, I'm going to come to your store. I'm going to give you the money, and I'm going to ship it out myself by going to, driving to the post office and mailing it. Are you okay with that? The guy's like, sure. You want to sell my shoes online? Sounds great. And so that uh, early venture turns into Zappos. And this guy, Nick Swinmerm, had no experience selling shoes online, had no experience with shoes or an online store before, but he experimented and he did it without having to create a massive facility that housed those shoes, without having a, a ton of money in order to open it up. He All he did was he took photos of the shoes, put them online, and if they sold, then he would handle fulfillment. And what that story teaches us is the importance of selling first and not building first and then trying to sell. And the importance there is that instead of investing two or three or five years trying to build the perfect version of, of whatever it is that people may not want, far better to find out as soon as possible what the reaction is. And you can do that at, by doing something as simple as you know putting on your landing page a coming soon, join the wait list, right? By recognizing how many people are visiting your website and then seeing what percentage of those people translate into uh people who are also on the wait list, that gives you a good sense of whether something is going to catch on or not. And I've experienced this on my own unintentionally where I've had some stuff that just wasn't built yet. So I put it on the website so I can capture some of those leads. And in fact, the things that start to sell before it's ready, that's an incredibly good sign that you're on the right track. Yeah. And to make that also very concrete for people. If you don't even, let's say you don't even have a site. One thing that I've done that has helped me a ton is a Google doc. Like you don't even, everybody has access to Google docs. Like if you have a new idea that you're looking at bringing forward, or you want to consult on a new project, you can easily create a really nice proposal on a Google doc and send that to someone uh, and make it look really nice and kind of get their feedback or actually not feedback, ask for their advice on it right. <laughs> um, is, is, is a great way to actually get started with an idea and just develop that proof of concept really quick. And um, the other story that I thought was great from this section was Irving Lazar. I never heard of this before, um, but I mean, I don't know if you want to tell that or if you want me to just summarize it, but another, another really great story from this section about being able to basically yeah. pitch, um, pitch movie stories and movie studios and publishing houses before he even had access to the celebrities. And then yeah, you go he's back like, to I, the got, I got this. I got Tom Brady to do a documentary. You interested? And so he yeah. sells the documentary, and then he goes to Tom Brady, like, "Hey, I got this great documentary. You want, you want in?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, Irving Lazar uh, developed this reputation as as someone who would represent anyone and everyone, and was able to sell tons and tons of projects using this methodology. Now, I, I wouldn't argue in favor of that method, but it just goes to show the importance of selling first, because if you can make the sale, everything becomes easier. Yeah. So much gold. Ron, this has been a blast. Time has actually flown. So I, I know we want to get going here and wrap things up. So um, I guess the last question I always like to ask to kind of conclude things is um, for your understanding, it's a, it's a simple but complex question at the same time. What does happiness mean to you today, Ron? 
You know, I've thought a lot about this. In fact, the thing that got me into psychology was uh, positive psychology. It was the movement to look at what it is that make people thrive rather than depressed or anxious. Uh, and that was a shift that happened in psychology in, in the turn of the century. Uh, and so for me, uh, happiness is um, achieving difficult things. And it's as simple as that. And this I've thought a lot about this in the, in the context of birthday presents. Sometimes you get tons of birthday presents and you're like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't need any of this. <laughs> and the older I get, the more that is the case where I, people can't buy me stuff that's going to make me happy. That's not because I'm a difficult person to shop for. It's because I don't really have a lot of material needs. But what really makes me happy is if I've written a good book or I've given a good, good interview, that those are the things that really bring pleasure to my life. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think I've that heard... I think that that is relevant to so many of us because one of the basic psychological needs is the need for growth, the need for competence. Unless you have that feeling of like I'm making progress in life, you're going to feel like you're languishing. And so, when you have that uh, perspective, I think it clarifies a lot of things. It's like, yeah, I could play Madden all weekend, but I'm not going to be happier for it. So, is that a good decision? No, it's not a good decision. <laughs> so I just think that having that, I, I really appreciate you asking that question. And I will ask you, what are some of the things you've heard from some of your guests that have resonated with you? Um, a really succinct one I heard is like, what do you love and who loves you? I think that's a really, really powerful one. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I just want to high, I mean, I guess that's the first one that popped into my head, but I, I think what you just shared is something that really resonates with me because as an entrepreneur, um, and somebody's just constantly pursuing growth. It's like, if you sense that decrease in momentum, like it, it, it erodes a lot and it, it's kind of, I don't know, there's a healthy balance to it. But like just the other day, my friend actually just posted this on social media. I have gone skiing twice in my life. The first time I went, I went from the bunny hill and I ended up doing a black diamond. Did I want to do the black diamond? No, but I forced myself to do it because I knew at the end of the day, I would have regretted if I didn't do a black diamond. And the equivalent, the second time I went last weekend, they had a racing track, you know, where you had to like really carve. And as somebody that has only skied twice, it was one of those things where it's like, I'm going to be disappointed in myself if I don't try to get down this racing track. Um, and so I made it down twice. And of course the video he posted was the one I'm eating shit on the time that I didn't do it correctly. But, but it was, it was, I, I love so much. I love your answer so much because it's so much about pushing yourself beyond what you think is possible. And that to me has also been a great source of happiness and growth is when I do things I don't want to do, or I do things that are really challenging and I can go back and look at it. So I love your yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, I guess to kind of just wrap things up, where can people find out more? Obviously people can go get Decoding Greatness. Is there a particular place you want them to go? Tell us a bit about where you want people to head. Well, I, you know, I, I recommend getting the book at, any, at your favorite bookstore. And once you do make, uh, once you do purchase your book, whether it's on Audible or on Kindle or, or the hardcover, if you go over to decodinggreatnessbook.com, um, if you just uh, submit your receipt, we will send you a free course on how to start applying this in your business and your career. So that is uh, where I'd recommend checking it out. You can learn more about me on ronfriedmanphd.com or at my company website, which is ignite80.com. And the reason it's called Ignite Ignite 80 was because over 80% of employees are not engaged at work. So our mission at Ignite 80 is to teach leaders and their teams some of the science on how to get people to feel more engaged, more creative, more productive. Um, And so that is our focus there at Ignite 80. 
Love that. Well, you heard it, ladies and gentlemen, decodinggreatnessbook.com. Add your receipt there. Get the extra bonus goodies. I've grabbed them myself. Uh, and it's a really good summary. He has a bunch of PDFs on there as well that are going to kind of help you consolidate some of the knowledge. RonFriedmanPhD.com or Ignite80.com. And I guess the last thing I always like to say to everyone listening right now, if you're new, if this is the very first time you've ever heard my voice and you decided of all the places you could be right now, you decided to hang out with me and Dr. Ron Friedman today. I just want to say welcome. I'm super grateful for you to be happy having you hang out with us. And if you're returning, I say this to you every single week, but you know how much I love you, how much you, I appreciate you coming back for week in, week out. Uh, and whether you are new or returning, I have a favor to ask you. And that is if you have been impacted by this episode, if you've learned something about how to deconstruct a template and you're, you're excited about taking that and turning that into a business venture or honing your craft, this podcast can absolutely transform someone's life. Podcasts have changed my life. So if you choose to share this with someone, not only is it going to make my day, but it's also going to make Ron's day as well. So uh, whether you choose to do that or not, uh, we, I appreciate you, Ron. Thank you so much for coming on. Any any last things you want to say? I appreciate you so much for hanging out today. No, it's my pleasure. And it, you do a great job with this podcast. I really appreciate all the research you put into developing your questions. Thanks so much, Ron. This has been awesome. And uh, for everyone listening, we'll talk to you soon.